Father in heaven, we're asking you to be here with us today. We know you already are. Bible promises that. But I pray you'll be here in such a tangible way that we will feel your presence. I pray, Father, that you will be here in such a tangible way that you will grab us by the hand and lead us through your word. Father, the things that we are about to look at can lead us to a place where we will be undone. So I pray that will happen. But I pray we'll be covered by grace and your goodness. And as we are, I pray that we will make decisions that will take us to a place of full devotion, wholly devoted to you. And I pray that that will never, ever change. Teach us this morning. Inspire us. Correct us. Rebuke us. Whatever is necessary, Lord. We're here. And we know you are too. So we look forward to what's going to happen. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would, open up to Colossians chapter 1. A couple weeks ago, we started a study of a passage out of that chapter that we'll be in through the month of January there's five different things I want you to see from it. And so we're kind of entrenching on each one of those. But let's go back through the passage together. Colossians chapter 1, verse 9. The Apostle Paul writes, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." Now, this current sermon series, we have titled The Transformed Life. And again, it's based on the passage that we just read. And I already told you five things that I want you to see. And I've shown them to you the last couple of weeks. But let's take a look at all five of them one more time. Here they are up on the screen. Number one, the transformed person is filled with the knowledge of his will. That's a sign of a transformed life. The second sign... The transformed person is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. The third, the transformed person bears fruit in every good work. Number four, the transformed person is strengthened with all power. And number five, the transformed person gives thanks to the Father. Now, I want to remind you that we are not talking about a one-time event that happens in a Christian's life where all of these things become evident. It is a process. It is a process it is one that we have to choose to be involved in. We have to devote ourselves to it. We have to work at it. And as we do, all of these things become evident in the life of a believer. But please hold on to the realization that this is a process. Don't beat yourself up if it's not all in place yet. Just get in the process. So with that in mind, I want us to pull out number two. The transformed person is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's where we're headed this morning. Now, if you don't slow down and really consider what Paul is saying here, 
you could fall into a trap, an easy trap, that will lead you onto the wrong side of this teaching. So we have to slow down and pay attention. Here's what I mean by that. Paul is not writing something here to the unsaved that are wanting to be saved. Paul is writing to the saved. This is a message to Christians. This isn't something that is written to those that are wanting to become Christian. And that's not something that should take us by surprise, because all the way through the New Testament, this same type of teaching occurs. It's interesting that Jesus would illustrate it repeatedly in the Gospels. The book of Romans would describe what Paul is laying out here in incredible detail. Peter preaches on it. John writes about it. And Paul teaches about this. What I'm really trying to get across is the fact that we are not saved by works. We are saved by grace. So when we look at this on the surface, we could easily believe that we are to live a life worthy of the Lord unto salvation. That's a trap. That is a trap. Let me make sure that you see this for yourself. Join me in the book of Ephesians. Chapter 2. Verse 8. Again, the Apostle Paul is the author of these words. He writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. That's why we have to slow down and really consider what was written in Colossians chapter 1. If we don't, we can easily see a works-based salvation. Boy, what a trap that is. What a horrible trap that is. And there are a lot of people that believe that they can't come to Christ until they are walking in a manner worthy of Christ. And as a result of that, they never come to Christ. So slow down and really consider what he's writing so that you don't get on the wrong side of it. And in order to do that, we have to pull out certain portions of this passage in Colossians chapter 1 and really dig in and figure out what they mean. Let's just do that with one section this morning, the part where Paul says, worthy of. There it is up on the screen for you, worthy of. There's no less than five times in the Bible that this Greek word translated worthy of shows up. I'll show you all five because each one gives us a greater depth of insight into what Paul is really trying to get across here. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to look them all up. I'll just put them up on the screen for you and we'll walk through them one by one. Starting with the use of this Greek word in the book of 3 John. Here's what John writes. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner, watch this, worthy of God. Now you're getting just a little bit of insight into what Paul was trying to teach. Hold on to what John just added to it. Take a look at the second use of it. We exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner, here it is, worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. Of course, there's a passage we just read in Colossians chapter 1. It's one of the five uses. Take a look at it again. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, 
fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Two more to go. Only let your manner of life be, once again, worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may have hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That's in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27. And here's the last one. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. Now there we have them. They're laid out for us so that we can actually see, so that we can actually see the depth of insight that Paul is trying to get us to and make sure that we stay on the right side of the teaching. Because you see, what we have to really drive home into our hearts and into our minds is that when we find this statement in Scripture, it is not teaching us that we have to live a life worthy of what we deserve from God. Catch that. We have to not live a life worthy of what we believe we deserve from God. You see, that's a works-based salvation. Rather, we have to live a life that we believe is worthy of what God has done for us. That's sanctification. There's a big difference. In the realm of salvation and sanctification, salvation simply means, it's a big, big biblical churchy word, but salvation simply means our full surrender to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Sanctification means growing in the relationship that we find with God through His Son. There's a works-based salvation that leads nowhere. It's a dead end. That's the wrong side of the teaching. The grace-based, faith-based salvation that solely says, Jesus did this for me, it is not dependent on me, is the right side of this. And sanctification follows. Worthy of is talking about sanctification. It is talking about us living a life according to what we have received from the Lord to demonstrate to everyone around us that we are His, to demonstrate to everyone the love that we have received. That's what it means to live a life worthy of the Lord. Are you tracking with me? You're on the right side of the teaching? This is for Christians. Pay close attention to it. Matthew chapter 3, verse 8, we just saw it up on the screen again. Take a look at it one more time. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance shows us a value-added side of this. If you have repented of your sin, if you have turned and walked the other way in salvation, then bear fruits. Bear fruits that will demonstrate to everyone around you that you belong to the Lord. That is adding value to your relationship with God. That is adding value by bringing other people into what you have received. That is adding value by demonstrating to all of the world around you, whoever that may be, friends, family, neighbors, co-workers, whoever that may be, you are demonstrating to them what God has done for you. That's value-added faith, and it is of the utmost importance. I hope you'll do that. Now, interesting, Colossians chapter 1 shows us really what we have to see about living a life worthy of the Lord to make sure that we stay where we are supposed to. And Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, 
helps us understand it. So let's go back to Colossians chapter 1 one more time. Take a look at what Paul says, verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him. Fully pleasing to Him. And then pay close attention to this in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists, that He rewards those who seek Him. It all begins with faith. Walking in a manner worthy of the Lord all begins in faith. And then, once we have that in place and we start living in such a way that it is pleasing to Him, others are drawn. Others are drawn. They want to see what it is that makes you different. They want to know what you have in your life, many of them, so that they can have it themselves. Value added to faith through the bearing of good fruit brings other people to God. Somebody say amen. Amen. All right, you're with me. As we go back through Scripture, there are a number of different characters that we could find in our Bibles that demonstrate what it means for people to be drawn to God by the way we live. But there's probably only one that shows us what that looks like and then shows us the other side, the traps that we have to be aware of when we are walking closely with the Lord. His name is Solomon. We find him in the Old Testament. We'll be in the book of 1 Kings if you want to turn that direction. It was my intention when I first started putting the message together to take you back into Solomon's story in Scripture and just walk you through it in our Bibles. But I quickly figured out we would run out of time today if we were going to hit all of the highlights of his life. So I went on that journey myself and I wrote some notes as I did. If you will, I'll, I'll share those with you. These are just highlights from the life of Solomon. King Solomon loved the Lord The Lord was pleased by him. God offered him whatever he wanted. So Solomon asked for wisdom. That pleased the Lord even more. So he granted it along with knowledge and wealth beyond comparison. Then God followed all of that with this promise. And if you walk in my ways and obey my statutes and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. The way of Solomon prospered for four decades as the king of a unified Israel. Over the course of 20 years, he built the temple and in an ornate palace for himself, making master craftsman Hiram wealthy beyond his wildest dreams. Solomon settled disputes and unified nations. Israel knew a long period of peace under his reign, so much so that foreign leaders traveled untold miles to see for themselves the one whom God loved. Finally, the Bible says King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. But the Bible also says Solomon struggled to honor his deep devotion to God. So he was the last king of a unified Israel. After his reign, both Israel and Judah would struggle to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, though like Solomon, they would try hard at times. Solomon's struggle, as devoted as he was to the Lord, is really captured in one word in the midst of how the Bible recounts his life. I want to see if you can find it for yourself this morning. So we're going to turn to the book of 1 Kings. Now I'm going to do this out of the New International Version because I like how it reads differently than the English Standard Version. 
And really what I like is the way this one word shows up in the NIV because it doesn't appear in the ESV. So that's why I'm switching translations this morning. But we're in 1 Kings chapter 10, verse 23, and I want you to listen very critically, very closely for a transitional word that just jumps out at you, that shows how Solomon went from walking a fully devoted life into a divided life with God. It is one word. You just listen close for it. Verse 23, chapter 10. King Solomon was greater in riches and wisdom than all the other kings of the earth. The whole world sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God had put in his heart. Year after year, everyone who came brought a gift, articles of silver and gold, robes, weapons and spices, and horses and mules. Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. The king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stones, and cedar as plentiful as sycamore trees in the foothills. Solomon's horses were imported from Egypt and from Kew. The royal merchants purchased them from Kew. They imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and the Aramaeans. Now, right there in chapter 10, you're hearing about the immense blessing that is resting on Solomon. Wisdom, knowledge, and wealth given to him by God. And it was really something. If you just break down the chariots, the horses, and all that, you're going to see this immense wealth. But as you go deeper into Solomon's story, you find out that it greatly surpasses those things. That's who Solomon was, blessed by God. Chapter 11, verse 1. King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter, Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, and Hittites. They were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after their gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. Now, hopefully you were listening critically. Hopefully you were listening very small and you caught the word. Anybody catch it? However. Here it is up on the screen for you. It is the word however. Now, I really like what Patrick Morley has to say about this word. This is good teaching. Pay close attention. The word however ranks among the most pregnant of words. It qualifies whatever has gone before it. It is a modifier. It changes a good report to a conditional report or softens the blow of a bad report. In this instance, the word however recasts the greatest report ever given into a sad light. That's the however of Solomon's story. Solomon had all these blessings from God. He was walking fully devoted to the Lord. But there was something in his life that drew him away. It was his However, 
His however caused him to take his eyes off of God, the one who had poured out all these blessings on him, and chase his own desires. It's tragic. Tragic when you are able to look into the depths of the story and see what he walked away from, to see what he compromised. It's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. Do you realize that because of this, however, the nation of Israel was divided? Israel and Judah became separate nations, and they are still divided today as a direct result of Solomon's however. He stopped walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. His however drew him away. And the Bible actually tells us the two greatest offenses. And the Bible does that through mentioning the names of the gods that he would follow, the gods that he would chase because of these foreign wives that he had. The god Ashtoreth. Ashtoreth was a god of sensual desires and sexual debauchery. Free love surrounded Ashtoreth. That's who she was. And everybody in that region loved her because of the permissiveness that came through following her. Solomon got pulled right into it. He had a wife, at least one, that taught him that, that put him on that path. His however became this lust of the flesh, and oh boy, did it get him in trouble. 700 wives, 300 concubines. That's trouble. In any way you cut it, that's trouble. But then there was Molech. The Bible would actually say of Molech, the detestable God, Molech. Now we've got Ashtoreth, who is called out by name, but Molech is called the detestable God. You want to know why? I ask you that because you, you need to be sure that you want to know why. Yes, because Molech was the God that required child sacrifice. Children were slaughtered in the worship of this detestable God. I do not want to chase a rabbit that we can't catch this morning. But boy, it sounds like Solomon's however and Israel's however is not very far removed from the however of the United States. We knew what it meant to walk wholly devoted to the Lord. And our howevers crept in just like they did with Solomon. And sexual debauchery has taken root. Sensual sins have taken root. And we have today child sacrifice called abortion. It was not until this week as I was studying this out that I actually thought of abortion that way. But really, that's what it is. Abortion is the sacrifice of children to false gods, whatever they might be. Shame, guilt, pride, convenience, whatever it might be. False gods. And those two things seem to define what's going on all around us. I only mention this because... In December of last year, the Supreme Court heard heard oral arguments once again on Roe versus Wade. They have yet to give their ruling on it. You be praying about that ruling because it matters. It matters. Solomon chasing his howevers ended up dividing the kingdom until the kingdoms fell. And it all started with Solomon's however. He set the stage. 
And after Solomon's reign, other kings would come on the scene and they would struggle and fight against their howevers. Some of them would battle through unto faithfulness, but the majority of them would surrender to their howevers. They knew what it meant to follow God. David gave them the example, but they just couldn't do it because their howevers were too strong. So let's go back into Solomon's however, and then start looking at our own because that's what we have to do. It's so easy to point fingers at other people, even biblically to point fingers at other people when we need to be taking a hard look at ourselves because the truth of the matter is we all have howevers in our lives. We want to walk wholly devoted to the Lord. However, we struggle with it at times. And do you know why? Because howevers are the greatest tools in the enemy's arsenal. They are the greatest tools the devil has. And he uses them very, very well. All he has to do is find out what they are and then pop them back in front of us on a regular basis. You want to walk wholly devoted to the Lord, you start investing in it. However, here's this thing that can pull you away, that can pull you back or sidetrack you so easily. Do you know that Satan actually tried to use howevers with Jesus when he was being tempted out in the wilderness? That's how common this is. That's how much he uses these types of tools. Do you remember that account as you have read through the New Testament at different times? Jesus was tempted on the surface with food, money, and power. Satan tempted him with those three things. And it looks like those were the howevers that he was throwing in front of him. He'd been fasting for 40 days. Food made sense. He showed him all the kingdoms of the world, and he said, these can be yours. He showed him all the, the things that were in front of him and, and said, money, that's yours. And then he showed him power. He said, throw yourself down from here, and angels will come, and they will rescue you. That's what he was doing. But one degree below the surface, you really see what those howevers are. Because Satan doesn't tempt everybody with food, money, or power. But he does use these three things pretty effectively. Lust of the flesh, food. Lust of pride, power. And lust of self, money. So when we look at those three lusts, which by the way, However, is the fuel for lusts. When we look at those three lusts, most of our howevers fit within them. And that's how we get pulled away from a wholly devoted walk with God. It's pretty tragic when that takes place. And if we're not careful, constantly looking to protect ourselves from it, we can fall into the easy traps of the enemy. You know, the Apostle Paul would actually refer to this as one of the few fears, one of the few fears that he ever says he battled against. Now we're talking about the Apostle Paul, and he actually said he was afraid of things like this. Let's make sure we know who we're talking about. Join me in the book of 2 Corinthians, will you? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, last part of verse 21. Listen to how Paul describes himself. But whatever anyone else dares to boast of, I'm speaking as a fool. I also dare to boast of that. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the offspring of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman. 
with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I'm not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. At Damascus, the governor under King Aretas was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall and escaped his hands. Now that's Paul talking about his own life, and it doesn't sound like he's afraid of much. He's been thrown in prison, he's been beaten, he's been near death, he's been shipwrecked, he's been blown and tossed out at sea. That's just Paul's life. It sounds like Paul's saying, whatever's next, Lord, bring it on. But the Bible would actually say of a, a brave man like this, not just the Bible, he would say it of himself, that there's one thing that scared him, and it scared him a lot. Interestingly, that's actually called out in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 as well. Verse 1, listen to this. I wish you would bear with me in a little foolishness. Do bear with me, for I feel a divine jealousy for you, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. There it is, that's his greatest fear. His greatest fear, though he doesn't use the word, is the howevers that the enemy uses. I introduced you to Christ. I love his terminology. I betrothed you to him. But I'm afraid. I'm afraid that the cunning enemy will come in and he will pull you away from your devotion. That's Paul's fear. Can you imagine that? Sitting down with the apostle and just asking him, what scares you, Paul? And you're thinking about everything that he's been through, and, and this is what he lays out. It scares me to think that those that I have introduced to the Lord will be pulled away because the enemy is so cunning that he got Eve. And he's still hunting people. He hunted our Lord, and he will hunt you to try to destroy your devotion. Paul was scared of that. Paul was terrified of that. I'm not saying that we should be terrified. I'm not saying that we should be scared of it. But I am saying we need to be aware of it. We need to be paying attention to this cunning attack from the enemy so that we can fight it off. Peter, thankfully, gives us a good way to do that. Let me show you what he says. Book of 2 Peter. Second Peter, chapter 1. Verse 3, Peter writes, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness 
through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There He is. He's telling us the howevers. You've escaped it. Don't go back into it. Verse 5, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith. He starts right there. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us, that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So here we go back to the foundation of it. Now, supplement your faith with virtue, and virtue with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, They keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the way out of it. That's the way to walk wholly devoted to the Lord and have no fear of the howevers that are in your life because you're not paying attention to them. And you're not paying attention to them because you have had this foundation of faith laid in your life and now you are adding to it virtue and knowledge and wisdom all the way through to brotherly kindness. And you are doing so with that value-added mentality in increasing measure. All of these things are growing in your life all of the time and they are bearing fruit that becomes evident for others to see. And the howevers are so far behind you that there is little to no temptation to go back into them because you are constantly growing. And as you are, catch this, you are walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's the way it works. The transformed life is constantly growing, adding these things. So you add them. In sanctification, you add them in increasing measure. And you keep doing that until you see the Lord face to face, until your life here is over. And when you do, your howevers won't matter. Let's finish out our time together, though, by going back into Solomon's howevers. Here's the way he he got caught in them. He believed that he could have both things a relationship with God, and a relationship with the world. He believed that he could combine those, that he could walk wholly devoted to God, and he could walk in this other life devoted to the things of his wives, devoted to the things of the world. He believed that he could have both and that he could separate them, but it doesn't work that way. It does not work that way. In fact, here's what happens. When we choose to walk with God and the world, the world comes into our relationship with God and dilutes it so that we're no longer wholly devoted. That's the way it works. There has to be a separation. There has to be a point where you say, I'm not going to allow this influence into this relationship because if this influence through my howevers comes into this relationship, This relationship will dilute and for many people dissolve and just go away. It just won't matter anymore. Solomon thought he could have both. He was the wisest man to ever live. He was wrong. Solomon had this godly wisdom and knowledge given to him, but still the enemy sucked him into believing that he could have both, and he was wrong. 
I love the fact that the Apostle Paul, when he was speaking about his fear over that happening to the saints that he had led into a relationship with the Lord, he would use the idea of the marriage vows. He would talk about how he betrothed them to Christ. Well, that illustration actually helps us see how to avoid all of this so that we continue to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord no matter what, no matter what. In the early traditional marriage vows, there was a a statement that got used on a pretty regular basis. That statement sounded just like this, forsaking all others. We don't use that as much as we should today, forsaking all others. I don't know why it isn't used in the traditional vows. It should be, because it, it really carries quite a deep meaning with it, forsaking all others. Christian counselor named Gary Thomas actually wrote back in 2017 a wonderful, wonderful article on it. Let me share with you just an excerpt from what he had to say. Titled, Forsaking All Others, posted February 9th, 2017. Being closer to anyone other than your spouse is a betrayal of your wedding vows. When we think of betraying our wedding vows, we usually think of something sexual or romantic. But there's a far more common betrayal that isn't about romance or sex. It's about emotional connection or relational dependence. The reality is that if you are closer to anyone other than your spouse, you are maintaining I love how he says this, an immature marriage, and are at least in danger of betraying your vows. The object of your affection might be a child, a parent, or a best friend for whom there is no romantic connection at all. But if there is more intentional and invested intimacy in that relationship above your relationship with your spouse, that crosses the line into betrayal. When it comes to an intimate and cherishing marriage, the auto default always has to be in favor of our spouse over everyone else. On the day we got married, we already decided and declared to everyone, including our God, that our spouse comes first. Remember, we promise to forsake all others and keep myself only unto you. If we fail at forsaking, we will necessarily fail at keeping. That's pretty good stuff. It really is. Now apply it to a wholly devoted relationship with God, one in which we were betrothed to Christ. In the moment that we made that declaration, and for many people that happened in the baptistry, when we said, I am now forsaking all others, I am wholly devoted to you. If we allow anything else to creep into that relationship that becomes more important to us than Jesus or our relationship with him, we will necessarily fail at keeping, at walking wholly devoted to him. The beautiful part about the baptistry being the place where that declaration was made is it becomes an anchor point for you to remember the relationship, to hold on to what you have declared, forsaking all others, Lord, I will walk the rest of my life with you, and I will not allow anything to compromise that relationship. When we do that, We are walking wholly devoted to the Lord. Pretty cool the way it works. Why don't you stand and pray with me? Father in heaven, it would do me no good to lie to you or anybody else and say that this wasn't a challenging message to write. 
was challenging because it is so personal to all of us, myself included. The howevers are always in the shadows. Satan is ready to shove them right out in front of us at any given time, Lord. And if we're not watching for them, they'll jump on us like, like we never expected. Solomon knows it. We all know it. So I'm grateful that you give us this way through that. Full devotion. Wholly devoted to you. Father, that's, that's what we want. And we know that, that once that's happened, we're walking in a manner worthy of you. So help us do that. Help us do that. Father, help us do that by opening our eyes to the enemy's presence, to the attacks that he would level against us. But Father, then open our eyes, our heart, our minds, every bit of us to understand that you're more powerful than he is and we already have the victory. So Father, don't let us give him credit. But rather, let us just hand him defeat after defeat after defeat. I pray that we will. And I pray that we'll do that by adding to our faith all the other things that Peter listed out for us. And as we do, Father, I pray that we will live a life worthy of you, demonstrating to everyone what you have done for us and how valuable it is. So I pray, Father, then when they see it, they'll want it. They'll want you. And I pray they'll find you. Asking that in Jesus' name, amen.